last uh, five weeks, I, I skipped out one and left you in the good hands of Susan Robb at that point, but um, uh, that was so I could attend a high school reunion, which was a very illuminating experience and depressing in some ways, but uh, uh, we all survived it and got through with that. Uh, delighted to be back with you to complete this series on the Christian sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we've been uh, carrying on. I spoke two weeks about uh, baptism, gave you some background, and then talked about the practice of how we actually practice baptism. Uh, and last week I gave you some background on the Lord's Supper, and today uh, we're going to talk about that, and not just talk about it, we're going to actually do it. Uh, so it's kind of like somebody who asked a friend, he said, have you ever... Uh, he said, do you believe in infant baptism? And he said, believe in it. He said, I've actually seen it happen. Uh, so uh, well, I hope when you get through, you can say not only you believe in the Lord's Supper, but, you, we, but we did it. We didn't just talk about it. We, uh, we actually did that. Uh, to do this, I want to talk to you for a second about a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is dealing with a controversy over spiritual gifts in the church, but he says something about worship that's very illuminating. He says, uh, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. What should I do then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. Otherwise, if you say a blessing with the spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say the amen to your thanksgiving since the outsider does not know what you're saying? For you may give thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul was sometimes given to a bit of exaggeration, you know, rather than five and 10,000 and so forth. But, you know, what he's struggling with here is a classic kind of issue about uh, freedom in worship and structure in worship. Uh, freedom in worship, and, uh, where we do things as the Spirit leads us, and then doing things for the instruction and edification of others. A long-standing thing. We have a, a saying in the theological school world, uh, what's the difference between a liturgiologist, that's a, someone who studies Christian worship, what's the difference between a liturgiologist and a terrorist? And the answer is you can negotiate with a terrorist. Uh, but <laughs> liturgiologists tend to, uh, tend to be my way or the highway. This is the way we're going to do things. And part, part of it is this ongoing struggle about to what extent is worship structured and responsible to a community and responsible to a tradition and to what extent is worship uh, extemporaneous and adapted to changing needs and situations a long ongoing thing and one that's uh, been part of our Methodist story. I tell my students this all the time. In the time of John and Charles Wesley, there was a new innovation in worship that was very controversial. It's what we call the hymn today. Many people thought this was entirely inappropriate for Christian congregations, uh, not something ordinary Christians ought to be engaging in regularly, uh, and eventually hymns become part of what we do in church. Sometimes we can't, as a Methodist, we can't uh, imagine church without hymns. In the late 1800s, there was a new movement uh, to develop Christian songs along the lines of the popular Victorian entertainment of the day. 
uh, people would hear these singers in music halls and professional musicians singing these elaborate uh, songs, and they constructed Christian lyrics that went along with them. It's what today we call gospel music. It was very controversial in the late 1800s. A lot of people said, no, these Watts and Wesley hymns, that's the way Christians are supposed to worship, and we don't do that modern Francis Jane Crosby and Thomas Dorsey and those kinds of uh, newfangled Christian songs. Uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, folks were experimenting with bringing the culture of rock music and hip-hop and eventually rap into Christian uses. And a lot of folks, you may have heard some of this, said, we don't do that in Christian churches. That's not uh, part of our tradition and heritage, but we've uh, sort of adapted to that. So uh, when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, it's one of those cases uh, where we need to talk about uh, the interplay of all of these different uh, cultural traditions, Christian traditions, and how we put that together. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, there's a pattern that comes to us from the very earliest Christian churches. Uh, we don't have a lot of instructions in the New Testament itself for how we celebrate, uh, but uh, in about the 70s or 80s A.D., there's some literature that says when you give thanks over the bread, uh, you say, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, for the bread which was once scattered on the hillsides has now been gathered into one loaf. Well, it turns out that's an old Jewish prayer. Uh, if you go to a, uh, a synagogue, you may hear them say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, blessed are you, O Lord, our God. And part of that prayer is that the wheat that was once scattered on the fields and grew as separate grains has been put together into one loaf, one people. So it looks like Christians used uh, Jewish prayers, and they used the prayers over uh, the cup of wine uh, that, uh, I say wine with a little bit of an emphasis. Methodists have a sort of thing about whether it's wine or whether it's unfermented grape juice and so forth. But uh, in the 150s A.D., or right around 150, a Roman Christian named Justin, we call him St. Justin the Martyr because he became a martyr for the faith, he described uh, very briefly how the Roman congregation celebrated the Lord's Supper in his time. Now, it's in a book that he called the apology for the Christian faith. And when he said an apology, he didn't mean, I'm so sorry, I'm a Christian, you know, like apologizing for the fact. He's try it means an, an, an explanation of Christianity to outsiders. And I think what he's trying to explain here is that this is not weird cultic stuff, you know. I mean, you're in the ancient world and your, your neighbors are Christians and you, you saddle over to the side of the, the garden and, and you hear them saying, this is the body, this is the blood. And you think, what are these kooky neighbors doing over there? Uh, and so, you know, maybe rumors were floating around. So Justin wants to say to Roman people, look, this is what we actually do. This is the very process. And I'm going to quote you his words as they appear in a recent translation from this paragraph of Justin Martyr's apology. He says, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Now, very interesting terminology here, but you realize there was no New Testament in 150 A.D. The books that we call the New Testament were kind of in process of, they had, they had all been written, but it was still being decided which ones you should read in the church, and some Christian groups did not actually read Old Testament readings. But Justin says, the memoirs of the apostles, that's probably what we would call the New Testament today, 
and the writings of the prophets, and maybe that's a, a specific term representing the Old Testament more broadly, are read. So they read the scriptures, okay? The president, now when he says president, he just means whoever presides. The presider in an address makes admonition and invitation of the imitation of their good things. That's a little complicated, but basically he says you're going to be reading about good things in the Holy Scriptures, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and then the president, whoever presides, stands up and makes an address. Well, that's what we would call the sermon, right? It's, it's a homily or a sermon. You, you make an address based on that Scripture, and you exhort people, you admonish them, you invite them to follow the example of what you have read about uh, in the scripture. So there's reading of scripture, there's an address or something like a sermon. And then it says, we all stand up together and offer prayers, just like we did under Reverend Rob's leadership a few minutes ago. We stand together and offer prayers. Bread and wine and water are brought in. It's interesting they bring water. They seem to have followed the typical Roman custom of mixing wine with water when it was served. Uh, and they mixed wine and water together for the celebration of Holy Communion. Probably for Roman peoples, there was no thought of drinking wine straight up, and, and this would have been rather natural for them. But they bring bread and wine and water uh, together as a kind of offering for God. And then it says, the president, the one who presides, offers prayers and thanksgivings. Well, the word for thanksgivings in Greek is ευχαριστία. If you go to Athens today and you want to say thank you to someone, you say ευχαριστώ. That's the word for I give you thanks. In this passage that I read you earlier, when Paul says, if you say a blessing with the Spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving, ευχαριστία? The, the root of our word Eucharist is there, and it's the same word that's used here by Justin Martyr to say that the president gives prayers and thanksgiving. Probably, uh, probably extempore, probably uh, simply uh, made up on the spot, though there was a certain pattern that we know that they followed in making up uh, what we are going to call now uh, the great prayer of thanksgiving. Back to Justin, he says, then the people give their assent, saying amen, just as Paul talked about the people saying amen. But if somebody is babbling away in an unknown tongue, it's hard to say amen to what they say because, you know, uh, you don't know what they're saying. They may be praying that God rains his judgment down upon you, and you don't want to say amen to that. Uh, you want to say no, uh, no, something like that. Then there is a distribution and a partaking of, this translation says, the Eucharistized elements, but really what that means is the elements, the bread and wine, and probably water mixed with the wine, over which thanks have been offered. Right? That, the Eucharistized simply means the, the thanked-for uh, elements, something like that. So that's the process that he imagines. I was at uh, Preston Road Church of Christ March a year ago, uh, and I'm actually going to go back to that screen because at Preston Road Church of Christ, one of the things I observed was that although their service is very informal, it follows the kind of tr tradition of the Church of Christ folks where they don't uh, use musical instruments and so forth, but beautiful music. They really know how to sing. Um, but there was reading of the scriptures, there was a fine sermon preached by the pastor of the congregation. 
There was a prayer time in the middle of the service. They brought bread and wine. Bread, it tasted an awful lot like Welch's grape juice to me, but they brought something that looked like bread and wine to the front. They brought it forward at the time they had the offering. Uh, a, an elder of the congregation, who I think is a state representative here in this area, offered a thanksgiving, and he gave thanks for the bread, and he gave thanks for the wine and thanks for the communion of the church and he remembered the work of Jesus Christ and he remembered Christ's institution of the supper. Uh, people said amen at the end of that prayer uh, and then uh, they shared the holy communion and they didn't make any distinction about now if you're a Methodist you don't take this or anything. Uh, they didn't say that and so um, my Church of Christ great-grandmother Campbell would have been real happy that I'm in, I'm in communion with at least one Church of Christ congregation. Maybe I was supposed to have known better, but I didn't, so uh, I received uh, the bread and wine that had been blessed in that service. See, it's a very, very natural order. If you think about it, there's really two parts of the service. The first part is what we sometimes call the service of the Word. Uh, the service of the Word is when you preach and you read the scriptures. Actually, you read the scriptures first, uh, and then you preach. So this is typically part of Christian worship from time out of mind, probably based on the, the practice of Jewish synagogues. Who The synagogues were, were not able to do the sacrifices that were part of the temple, uh, but they were teaching uh, services, kind of like the kerygma service here. Uh, and uh, they had readings from the Old Testament, including readings from the Psalms. Now, one of the things we're beginning to realize is they probably didn't chant the Psalms. There, at least there's no evidence for chanting the Psalms. We'd always said that, but it looks like they may have read the Psalms along with the other scriptures, and then later Christians began to sing uh, the Psalms as well as other things. The earliest Christians read the New Testament readings at the same time. They developed a homily or a sermon that itself could sometimes be a rather informal thing that they did, commenting on the scriptures and urging people to certain actions following what they had read in the scriptures. They would then say the creed as a summary of their faith. That's typically the way this developed. Um, uh, it's interesting, y'all have the creed before the sermon. That means you trust your preacher a lot. Uh, the, the, the logic of having the creed after the sermon is that if the, even if the preacher messes up and doesn't say things right, then you get it right in the creed. See, there's kind of a safety mechanism there after you do that. And then in early Christian churches, at this point, they would dismiss those who were not fully part of the Christian community. Now, those who were not, and what by this I mean uh, maybe children who had not been baptized or uh, catechumens, that means people who are in membership training classes learning to be part of the church, or even people who had been ejected from the fellowship of the church, you know, who, who the way they understood it was people who had disfellowshipped themselves by their actions and who were still waiting to be reintegrated back into the congregation. All of those folks would be dismissed at this point. They could stay for the reading of scriptures, the sermon, and so forth, but they're going to be dismissed. I say sometimes it's kind of like dismissing children for children's church. You know, well, you know, up to that point, the children can stay, but they get a little squirmy after a while, so you have to, um, uh, you have to have appropriate point to dismiss them and let them run away. Uh, we were talking about church in Scotland this morning over at Lover's Lane, and I was giving an example of squirming children. 
when we lived in England between 1977 and 79, we had friends who had children who on a squirmiosity scale, I would say, were probably at about 4.23. They weren't the squirmiest of children, but every now and then they got a little rustless in church, you know, uh, as I did. I was about a 8.63 on the squirmiosity scale, man. I was pretty serious. But these kids would get restless. And it was interesting, their, their parents observed to me that in England, nobody would ever say anything about this. It was entirely the parents' responsibility. But when they went to Scotland, I'm just warning you about this, uh, and they were at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, and they were sitting there in the seats in the cathedral. When their children started squirming, the people behind their children would lay their hand on their shoulders and sort of say, you, you calm down. Now, if we did this in the United States, we'd be shocked, you know, but, but the, the Scottish culture is a little different. They, have, they feel like the community ought to play a role in kind of, I wish they would sometimes, actually. It would be a nice thing if the community would help out parents with the sort of the, the squirming kids and so forth. So a little different culture there. But, but that's one of the reasons why we dismiss kids at a certain point uh, in the service. And then uh, we do uh, uh, the, the Eucharist proper, the, the communion proper. In the 1970s and 80s, we revised our services in the United Methodist Church. And I'm going to tell you in a minute the role that Highland Park played in that. But before I do... I want you to turn in the hymnal, if you have a copy of your hymnal, and I want you to look at page 26 in the hymnal, towards the beginning, page 26. You see it says, A Service of Word and Table 4. A Service of Word and Table 4. Uh... We've got three, four services identified, a, ser a, a service of word and table. One, two, and three are very similar. They're the modern revised form that we developed in the 1970s and 80s. Four is the one you grew up with if you grew up like me as a traditional Methodist or if you grew up as an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian. These are words that will be very familiar to you ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors you go on to say this prayer of confession almighty God father of our Lord Jesus Christ maker of all things judge of all we used to say men we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness at that point I thought a manifold had something to do with a car and I couldn't figure out what was so sinful about my car, but uh, this is my child's wondering about. These are the old kind of King James type language that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. The liturgiologists, as I understand it, didn't really want this to be in our new hymnal. Uh, they wanted us to go only with one, two, and three and the modern revised forms, but uh, folks in African-American churches basically said, if you don't have those words in the hymnal, it's unlikely that our churches will adopt this hymnal because those words are so powerfully etched in the minds of folks. Well, the, true, not just in African-American churches, but a lot of Anglo congregations uh, as well. But that's the old form of the service. In the early 1970s, we began revising our services. And if you turn to page 6, you will see the revised service of Word and Table 1. Now, that's... Uh, a service that follows a lot of the uh, order that I've given you here. So 
Uh, it was developed by a Perkins scholar by the name of James White. Uh, Jim White uh, attended this congregation, uh, and they basically gave him his own playground, and it was called Cox Chapel. And he used Cox Chapel as his experimental place to develop the services that eventually found their way uh, into the hymnal. But you see gathering, greeting, hymn of praise, opening prayer. That's a rather traditional prayer there. Um, proclamation and response. There's a prayer for illumination and then scripture lesson, psalm, scripture lesson, hymn or song, gospel lesson. Typically the pattern would be an Old Testament scripture, a psalm, maybe another reading from scripture, uh, a hymn or a song, and then the reading from the gospel, then the sermon, then the response to the word. See, we don't trust our preachers in this one. So you go ahead and do the, the creed following the sermon, just in case the minister messed up. Then you have concerns and prayers. And then this is beginning the uh, communion service proper. Let's see how much of this I've got. Setting in a service that includes the proclamation of the word. There is an invitation. Now, this is important, folks. Uh, some people say Methodists let just anybody come up to Holy Communion. Not so. We've got three conditions for coming to Holy Communion. I want you to take note of them. Number one says Christ our Lord invites to his table, number one, all who love him. You have to love Jesus Christ, right, as a condition of presenting yourself for Holy Communion. We don't say how much, thankfully. Uh, some of us mess up at that, but you, you have to profess your love for Jesus Christ. Number two, who earnestly repent of their sin. Okay, now some people say, I didn't go to communion because I felt unworthy. Well, I got news for you. Feeling unworthy is a requirement, okay? If you felt unworthy, guess what? This blood's for you, okay? I mean, you've got to feel unworthy. That's a requirement. If you feel worthy, I guess you don't need it, and may God bless you and have a nice life, but uh, this is for the unworthy ones, right? You've got to repent of your sin, and third, seek to live in peace uh, with one another. Uh, seek to. It doesn't say you accomplish that. Uh, so those are the requirements for communion in the United Methodist Church. Does not say you have to be a United Methodist. Does not even say you have to be baptized, though it might make little sense to say you want to have Holy Communion and you don't want to be baptized. That would be an odd situation. But we invite people and we invite them then uh, to confess their sins with us. This is where we're acting out uh, the saying that we're penitent. And then we proclaim an absolution. Hear the good news, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's to love toward us. And we traditionally say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And then the congregation says to the minister, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, dude, or dudette, or whoever. And that's important, too. That's the same reason why we put the creed after the sermon, traditionally, because we need it worse than you all need it, right? That's basically what that's saying. And then everybody says, glory to God, amen. You can share signs of reconciliation and love. And then we have what we call the great thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to skip that for just a minute, skip over page 9 and jump to page uh, the bottom of page 10. Uh, we break the bread and lift up the cup at the end of the service. That's at the middle of page 11. Uh, then we say the Lord's Prayer. Actually, I think I got it in the wrong order. We say the Lord's Prayer first, and then we lift up the bread and so forth. Uh, and then we share the elements uh, with each other. 
and then we have a concluding prayer and typically a dismissal. Now, if you turn back to page 9, what I want to point out is that that somewhat long prayer, and I may use a shorter form of it, actually turn with me to page 13. You'll see a slightly shorter form of this prayer. This prayer is a Trinitarian prayer. Sometimes we say you don't even have to say the creed when you have Holy Communion because we affirm our faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are the three main parts of this prayer uh, that we have here. So the very first part of the prayer is thanksgiving to God the Father. Uh, we say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then at that point, we give thanks to God the Father. You see, it's not, it's not a generic prayer to God, but it's uh, we give thanks to God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and you can add other stuff. It sort of gives you liberty right there to, to add on to the serve, whatever you want to say about thanksgiving to God the Father. And we end that by saying this, uh, what we traditionally call the Sanctus, that's holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And then there's a transition. When we start saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we're moving into talking about Jesus Christ. So it moves us from talking about God the Father to talking about Jesus Christ. And then we talk about Jesus, right? Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. And we do two things at the bottom of page 13 there. We give thanks for the work of Jesus Christ in salvation. That is the overall work of Christ. That's what I would call the gospel. And then second, top of page 14, we give thanks for uh, the work of Jesus Christ in instituting the supper. And we always recount the institution of the supper following 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 uh, and the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the way in which we do that. When we get through with that section about Jesus Christ, giving thanksgiving for the work of God in Christ and so forth, we conclude this by a summary of the gospel uh, about Jesus. So I will say at that point, as we proclaim the mystery of faith and you say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's the little short form of the gospel or of the creed. Then we're going to give thanks for the Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. One of my personal practices is that anytime we invoke the three persons of the Trinity, uh, I make a sign of the cross. And it's typically when we come to the invocation of the Holy Spirit. That is not Catholic property, by the way. Uh, the cross is, is our property as Christians. So either using the cross like this or putting the sign of the cross on yourself, that's not, uh, not something on which the Catholic Church has a copyright or anything like that. Uh, Episcopalians do it, Eastern Orthodox do it, and it's, it's, it's just a devotional practice. But I do that twice, actually, I say, when we say, Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. I make a sign of the cross on myself and then on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. We pray that the spirit would make us one until Christ comes in final victory uh, and we pray that our offering would become one with the offering of God in Christ. That's the whole thing. So let me tell you about one of my favorite 
Tennessee theologians. His name is Dave Ramsey, uh, and he does lectures about how to get out of debt and stuff like that, and he talks in a Tennessee accent just like my grandfather and grandmother and people. just makes me feel good all over. When he gets to the end of his whole thing about how to get out of debt and how to succeed financially and so forth, he says amazing things about, he says, when you finally reach all your goals and you've paid off your debts and uh, you have made provision for your future and so forth, he said it takes you about three months to buy everything you ever wanted. And then it's kind of boring, he says, because, I mean, I'm not there, but, I mean, this is what he says. It's just kind of boring after that. And then he says it takes six months for you to try to meddle in your children's lives and then realize that's not going to do any good. Uh, and then he says, what are you going to do? And he has this amazing thing. He becomes very theological at this point, and he says, the point of having resources is to give it away. The whole point, that that's the only reason God gives us resources is so we can give it away, so we can gift it to others. That's, I would say, that's what the Christian faith is all about. It says God has given God's self in Jesus Christ for the sake of the world, and God calls us to give ourselves back. That's what this whole service is about. Uh, it's about saying God has given God's self in Jesus Christ, and we are here to give ourselves back to God. You know, and that's the highest calling that a human being can have. So uh, the third part, I didn't get the bullet point up on the screen, is thanksgiving for the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and a prayer for the coming of the Holy Spirit. I've said to you that the Lord's Supper is the richest presentation of the Christian gospel. I've said that understanding it requires some background. If you understand how people practice sacrifices and offerings in the ancient world, then you understand that double motion of giving thanks for God's work for us and then giving ourselves, offering ourselves back to God. And in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the past, the present, and the future when we say uh, Christ has died, past tense. Christ is risen, present tense. Christ will come again. Uh, that's looking forward to the future. Uh, so next word, next week, come to hear my dean, Bill Lawrence, give the final word on Methodism. I'm interested in hearing what he has to say about that myself. I'd like to have the final word. Uh, we're going to sing a hymn, but are we going to sing that after we celebrate Holy Communion or before? Typically, y'all do it. At, well, let's save it till after, if you don't mind. So, Susan, I'm going to ask you to... Uh, join me at the table, and we have already uncovered the elements, but let's very carefully move this out a little ways so we can stand in front of it. And if you would, turn to page 13 uh, in the hymnal. We've already done most of the stuff that we have talked about here, but where it says the great thanksgiving, uh, would you join me at that point? The Lord be with you. <coughs> Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. It is a right and a good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so with all your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made covenant with us by water and the Spirit. 
On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. By your Spirit, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. The bread which we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? The cup over which we give thanks, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? We're going to share the elements of the Lord's Supper here between myself and Susan, and then I invite uh, each of you who can respond to our invitation to come forward and receive uh, the elements we're going to be using in tinction, so I will hand you a piece of the bread, and Susan will offer you the cup, and you can dip it in like that. Susan, the body of Christ given for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you.